Hysteria is brought to you by Books. This Mother's Day, give mom her flowers. She deserves the best. That's why you should send her farm fresh flowers from Books. That's short for bouquets. And right now, you can get 25% off your entire Books purchase. Here's why everyone likes the Books company. Books is different. Their flowers are cut fresh and sourced directly from the best flower farms, so they last way longer. They even have flowers grown on the side of a volcano, which I love. Books has modern designs and unique flowers you can't find anywhere else. Books is simple. Go online, pick the delivery date, and you are done. Mother's Day is May 12th. Don't miss the chance to thank your mom. Order your books now. And with 20% off, you can send some to mom, wife, aunt, and even grandma. Erin, I love my books. I love a flower that lasts forever, and my books arrangements really do last a full solid week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have uh, I have some sitting on my kitchen table right now, mm-hmm. and they've been there for several days. And usually when I buy them at, like, the grocery store, they're sort of, like, starting to crap Fade. out pretty quickly. Yep. Not with books. They stick around. They look beautiful. I like how they kind of slowly open up and become even more beautiful as they sit on your, you know, wherever Absolutely, you Absolutely, because they're that fresh. So go to books.com and use promo code hysteria for 25% off. That's B-O-U-Q-S.com, promo code hysteria. Books, promo code hysteria. Hello and welcome to Hysteria. I'm Erin Ryan. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco. Alyssa, what is the stupidest thing you've forgotten when you've gone away from home for like a night or a weekend or like a short vacation? Like what's the most important thing you've left at home? Oh, underwear. Okay, guess who just left underwear? No way! (laughs) I didn't pack any underwear and I'm staying in like a mountain town that is like a half an hour to the nearest Did place. you forget your bra and your undies? No, no. I couldn't possibly forget a bra. Not with Right. No, so, no. like, undies is no big deal, okay. in my opinion. <laughs> but I'm, like, eight months pregnant. And things are <laughs> different during that time. And also, like, I'm in a town that doesn't have a clothing store. They have, like, you know, a scarf store. And like a, a a wind chime store, but not yeah. like a not like a Walmart on the outskirts. No, and so I went to the only store where they were like, oh, they might have like sundries at this place, and the only thing they had was like women's underwear in a size that was like triple XL, which right doesn't not, fit you, not my size. Um, but the closest thing to my size they had was boys extra large. So I'm wearing boys. <laughs> Extra large underwear. But do they have Spider-Man on them? Because that would be awesome. No, they're plain colors. I wish, I mean, like, if you're going to be stuck wearing boys' briefs on vacation, I I just, I wish they were (laughs) Spider-Man. I I feel like I should go all out with those, like, Incredible Hulk, whatever. Like, I just, I wish they were a little more boyish. But yeah, I'm I'm currently wearing boys' underwear, and it's um, not ideal. Are they comfortable? Um, the leg holes are too small for my legs. Okay, okay, fair, fair, fair. <laughs> but otherwise, they, they're passable, you know? Like, <laughs> See, this passable. is good to know. This is helpful in-crisis information for listeners. Right, totally. You can wear boys' underwear uh, in an extra large if you cut slits in the legs. In the legs. <laughs> <laughs>
This week, we're joined by Rebecca Nagel, Michaela Watkins, and Julissa Arce to take on the following questions. What's keeping other states from enacting laws just as crazy as Texas SB8? What's the end game of the powerful interests challenging a law governing native adoption? What happens when too many people decide to bench themselves in the participation sport we call democracy? All this and more right now. Okay, let's get to the show. Today, we're going to dive deep on the Texas abortion law because, as we told you all last week, we had to re record an emergency top of the show because the law was upheld by the court during a week that we had pre recorded a show. So, under the hood stuff. Uh, but before we get to talking about this, Alyssa, I kind of want to issue a, a correction. What? Um, so, in the past, you know how I've talked about like male anti abortion zealots as being unable to find the clitoris with two hands, a flashlight, and a map. Yes, yes. Okay, that's a so, go-to for you. Yeah, but there's a couple problems with that. First, like, it excludes anti-abortion zealots of other genders, who I also Fair. believe definitely have not located the clitoris. Um, but I also think it lets them off the hook a little easily. Like, it's one thing to say these people are bumbling morons who couldn't find the clitoris and who are, you know— clueless about the female body. But I actually think that it's like more insidious than that. I think it's people that are actually angered by the idea of women having agency and humanity. Like these are people that would be, um, you know, back in the day, there were no anatomical drawings of the clitoris for, right. for hundreds of years because uh, zealots would like tear the drawings out of anatomy books. I think if like Greg Abbott lived in another time, he would have been one of the people tearing out any sort of study of the female genitalia from anatomy books. Do you feel like these people also disproportionately scream things like, how dare you? (laughs) Yeah, I think that there's something deeply wrong with them. And uh, it's it's really disturbing that those are the people in charge. But now that, you know, the dust has settled a little bit, sort of, and uh, people who are legal experts who are not crazy zealots have kind of explained the law, I kind of wanted to get into why exactly this Texas law that is currently enacted is so weird and what is being done to try to combat it. So, Alyssa, do you mind kind of talking about, like, what's so weird about it? And like, what are we going to do? Oh, Aaron, there are so many things that are tricky, tricky little bitch that this law is. Um, So the trickiest, bitchiest part of it is that it was drafted to prevent courts from reviewing it because the enforcers are normal people. It's done civilly. And and the thing also that is so dangerous about it is how repeatable it is in other states, right? So the law was drafted such that um, SB8 says that women in Texas cannot have an abortion once cardiac activity can be detected in the embryo, which is typically around the sixth week of pregnancy. It can be the fifth week of pregnancy. It can also be like, the eighth week. Like, like right. I exactly. know people, like pregnant people who go into the doctor for their first checkup, sometimes they have to go home and come back again because they can't find any cardiac activity right. that early. 
And so one, most people, most people don't know they're pregnant at that point. Um, the law doesn't make exceptions for rape or incest. And as Governor Abbott signed the law, Aaron, he made clear to tell everyone in Texas that he's it's okay because he's going to get all the rapists. There aren't going to be rapists anymore, which very confusing, very confusing how he's going to get that done. Um, yeah. I mean, that seems like more kind of what, what's jiggery pokery? Jiggery pokery. It's all jiggery pokery. Right. So this this law kind of relies on on jiggery pokery linguistically by saying, oh, you know, or, the original original court rulings that protect women's abortion access specify that the state may not interfere with right. a woman seeking an abortion. In this law, it individuals are empowered to interfere with people helping women getting getting abortions. So it's not even just, it's not that the law attacks the women that are having abortions. Correct. It is it's, the doctors, you know, the activists, the, the advocates. The, the, sedan, the taxi drivers. Yes, exactly. This, they, have, they have actually codified it in such a way that taxi drivers, doctors, the receptionist at the clinic – uh, can be charged with what is essentially aiding and abetting, um, which is crazy. That is like harboring a fugitive, Aaron. Um, mm -hmm. And so what is hard about this, and, you know, I'm not a legal scholar, so I always make sure that I say this right, is that it's considered an ordinary rule. And an ordinary rule is that when someone sues a state in order to block a state law, they cannot sue the state directly. So abortion activists who want to block this law can't sue the state. That is sort of the genius behind, uh, evil genius rather, behind what they have done here. And also worth us mentioning is that uh, we've seen uh, the few abortion clinics in Texas that still exist. The minute the Supreme Court was like, washed our hands of this shit, anti-abortion activists went to clinics and they had spotlights and they were stalking people and they were trying to shame people and they were protesting. And what is interesting and depressing about that is that abortion clinics have been the sort of stalking horse for anti-abortion activists for years and years. They're the boogeyman. The anti-abortion activists love abortion clinics because they are a stage for them, right? Mm -hmm. And so now what we're seeing in the state of South Dakota is that that dumbass governor is like, wait a minute, wait a minute, we need the abortion clinics so to like be theater. And so she signed an executive order banning medical abortions, telemedicine. So you cannot, if you are in South Dakota now and you realize you're pregnant, and especially because of COVID, a lot of states made it fine to get abortion medicine via the mail. And so she is banning that, Erin. She is banning it because she wants to make sure that people are forced to go to abortion clinics where they can be protested because she knows that this is something that they can't go without because uh, a third, one third of first trimester abortions are done medically, so mm -hmm. with a pill. And in 2017 alone, 40% of people who needed an abortion in the U.S. used pills. And that is not accounting for people who ordered them online. Mm -hmm. So she's kind of onto something here, right? Mm -hmm. And 
then they go further. So you have like, she's taking off that top layer of access and now they're trying to limit what can happen in clinics. And so this is, this is a five alarm fire. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's really, we're going to talk more about what kind of the big insidious aim of this is beyond just eliminating abortion. Cause I think it's bigger than just trying to eliminate abortion. Um, the aim of all of this seems to be to force people who become pregnant to give birth mm-hmm. and, reg- and and not provide them any support after the birth occurs at all, which will like inevitably just like force people to choose to either have a really dramatically lowered quality of life or give their children up to the foster care system. And like that, it's just so like... Have you ever seen Chitty Chitty Bang Bang? You know, like the child snatcher? Yeah. It's so child snatchery. Like, it's so weird to me and so anti-humane. There are people with a cause that have nobody's real best interests at heart. (laughs) Right. Well, they have like an imaginary dogma that they're right, following right. and like which is which has been totally improvised over the last 40 years. It's not like a real religious dogma. It's just stuff that resonates with their particular type of craziness. Right. Um I have a lot of questions about this law and I think a lot of people have a lot of questions about this law and I'm going to ask some kind of absurd versions of it. So the law deputizes anybody in the US. Any person. Any person. Anywhere. S- anywhere to sue anyone in Texas who is aiding and abetting Texas women from having an abortion. So I, but, but it also prevents the people filing the suit from being people who are employed by the state. So Governor Abbott cannot, or like who's an elected official. um, Correct. So Governor Abbott couldn't go around suing um, abortion clinic like workers. Right. Because he's the governor. However, that restriction doesn't go the other way. Like if Governor Abbott were to send a lady to a abortion clinic illicitly and pay for it, if he were to do something like that, he could be sued, is my understanding of the That sounds the, right. That sounds right. right. So if you are sued under this law, you have to show up in court and defend yourself. Yes. Otherwise you lose and you have to pay $10,000 to the person who sued you. Correct. And by showing up, you need legal counsel, more than likely, if you want to. And and that is not your screwed. That's just money you have to pay yourself. Yeah. You just have to pay for it or you have to pay $10,000. Um, I just want to know what is keeping a person with a lot of time and money, possibly with a legal degree, from just filing tons of lawsuits against people who they don't really have any proof against, but who will have to show up in court in order to defend themselves. Like, totally. what is is keeping George Soros from being like, here's $10 million. We're going to sue every single Republican in the Texas legislature. I can afford to lose the legal fees it would would cost for for these things. I just want to waste their fucking time. And then my second question is, what is to prevent other states with uh, let's say like California, which has a democratic mm-hmm. supermajority, from enacting a similar bill about enforcing laws that are liberal darling issues. What is preventing California from issuing a $10,000 bounty 
to anybody who can turn in someone who's aiding and abetting the sale of an illegal firearm. You know? Oh! What is to keep, what is to keep a state like, um, let's see, Vermont, who, uh, what's, what's to keep a state like for Vermont from offering a $10,000 bounty from anybody who is like aiding and abetting uh, millionaires who are participating in tax fraud? You know, like what th- is to prevent any of that from happening? I think the only thing preventing that from happening are states that have a reasonable understanding of the Constitution and the principles that the country was allegedly founded on. No, oh, man, I want it to be the purge. You want this <laughs> law? Let's fucking do it. Like, I mean, there's that's a, no. You're right. I mean, the you're Supreme right. Court isn't going to step in and do what they're supposed to do, which was to at least pause this law while they figured out what the hell it was doing. I just don't see a reason that Democrats shouldn't be like, all right, cool. Like, I choose violence. Let's do this. You know? I, I, no, I, you're I, right. You're right. I think it's once again, you know, like, you know, when they go low, we go high type bullshit. <laughs> no, no. When they I go know, low, I know. Let's go down there and beat them on the low playing field. I don't care if the pig likes it when you play in the mud. With you know the pig. I'm down to get in the mud at all times. I mean, these are like trolley questions, but I think that this law is not. It's a work of like annoyingly uh, complicated evil, but it's not like genius. Because if other people were actually to take advantage of this sort of a structure, it would really be a big headache for a lot of conservatives in a lot of different places in the country. So. I don't know. You're right. I take back my evil genius from at the top. <laughs> um, okay. I, I also think that like if this law for, in Texas, SB8, ends up being blocked entirely or struck down, it, that's not the end. That's not a victory. No, it's not. No, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health is on the Supreme right. Court's docket for the fall term, which is starting next month. Yeah, and October, that, baby. Yeah, that's the one that seems like it is the most teed up to actually directly confront Roe v. Wade. Um, this Texas law just kind of decided it lived in a different universe than Roe v. Wade. Um, but the the Mississippi law in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health directly confronts it. Um, and we would get a ruling on that next spring, probably yeah, next June. June. Um, so, you know, mark your calendars for that. That's going to be a lot of fun. Um, one thing I'm going to say, I want to give a few shout outs to like, uh, corporations who have done the right thing. Mm-hmm. I don't love, I don't love corporations. I, I'm not like a, I'm you're not, not like a, a corporate lover. No, no. I mean, in the world that we live in, it'd be silly to pretend that nothing that they do could possibly ever do any good. But we don't also have, we also don't need to pretend that they're like a net benefit. You know what I mean? Right, 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 right. So let's just, I just want to tip my hat to people that are doing the right thing in this one issue. Um, Uber and Lyft Mm -hmm. have offered to pay all the legal fees of their drivers who are sued under this law, which is pretty cool. It's pretty good. Yeah, which is pretty cool. Also, um, this company is a, is a sponsor, but this isn't sponsored content, Match. Um, and uh, they're the parent of Tinder, OkCupid, and Hinge. Apparently, there's an internal memo that circulated announced that uh, they're forming a fund that would help Texas-based employees and their dependents with any expenses if they need to seek abortions out of the state. Which is pretty dope. 
which is super dope. Um, I, I gotta gotta tip my hat to that. Also, uh, Bumble is trying to help people who need to access abortion services in Texas, uh, which is cool. But then there are some that are just like not doing anything, including American Airlines, one of the worst airlines. I was going to say, they really could fucking do some magic here based in Dallas-Fort Worth. They could be like, we will fly you free. They could do it, Aaron, but they are decidedly not doing that. (laughs) Yeah, here's another thing I was thinking about. So Mexico's Supreme Court earlier this week unanimously ruled that it was Decriminalized, yeah. Yeah, it's unconstitutional to punish women for having abortions in Mexico now. So how many women in Texas are going to be just taking puddle jumper flights down into Mexico to access reproductive health care? And will airlines like American Airlines be on the hook for that? Mm-hmm. I think I think they might. And so they got to pick a side. Got to pick a side. Because you know, there's always- like, there's one group of people we should also shout out, toast them almost. Okay. The TikTokers who shut down the reporting website that Texas had where you could report people you thought were helping with abortions. They flooded it with Shrek memes, I think it was, and Shrek crashed memes. the site. Uh, people were uploading the entire script to B-Movie, which is now kind of a a popular way to overload publicly <laughs> facing websites where you're supposed to add comments, the entire script of the film B-Movie. Um, there was also a, a young guy on TikTok who wrote a code and shared it with people that yes, allowed them. Yes, yes, yes. It just randomly generated reports using real Texas zip codes designed explicitly to look real and waste the time of the people that were investigating these things. And I wish I knew the guy's uh, handle. I'll look it up and we'll put it in show notes because he's awesome. And like, then he ended up like getting blocked. And so he made a workaround. He was in like an all out coding war with this website, um, which is pretty, pretty cool. I want to end this like kind of ranty news segment on on this thought. Every time this happens, every time there's a, a bill like this that gets passed, a law that gets enacted, or caught in the, you know, legal spider webs or whatever, every time I feel like there's a new round of people explaining how pregnancy works, basic health information. You know, ev- when when the six-week ban came, like was coming down the pike, People were had to explain that six weeks pregnant actually counts uh, differently than you would think. It doesn't mean that you have been pregnant for six weeks. It just means it's been six weeks since the first day of your last period, right. which means it has been maybe a week or two since you've missed a period. And it means that you have only had a fertilized egg physically in your body for maybe three weeks. Maybe three weeks. And before that point, there is no actual way for your body to even know that you're pregnant. That's part of the design of human reproduction. After after an egg is fertilized, a chemical process occurs that makes that fertilized mass of cells invisible to a mother's body because otherwise the mother will recognize it as a foreign object and kill it. Like that, it is designed to be invisible for several days before it attaches and the placenta begins to form. This is a basic reproductive fact. And the fact that there are so many adults that do not know how this happens and every few years has to have this re-explained to them is is baffling to me, Alyssa. Like, I mean, I agree. Do, I agree. 
do people just like, but it's sort of like, it reminds me of like a, like a, a hacky sitcom joke where it's like, do any of you ever listen when a woman talks? Like how many fucking times do we have to explain it? This isn't how pregnancy works, you know? Like, no, I know. Believe me, I know. They, it is, it is, it is mystical that they, that it just vaporizes in their brains. It's, yeah. And, and it's like, how much do they just take information that is not convenient to their worldview and just sort of like, it, does it just kind of slide off the smooth surface? Yeah. Of their brains. It just, it's so frustrating and it's so annoying that every time this happens, and Megan Gailey was talking about this on Twitter, every time this happens, women feel, and and people who have been pregnant and not wanted to be pregnant, feel like they have to come out and go through their trauma again. Or like, you know, the traumatic experiences leading up to them having an abortion, which was a relief to that traumatic experience. Whatever. They have to relive that over and over again. And every single time, it's like people pretend that they didn't hear it. Oh, I'm here. It's like, you're not hearing it. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. (laughs) Yes. I, I just don't understand how you can be that stupid about how every human being came into existence and how abortion works when we have this conversation every fucking year, you know? It's true. All right. Well, let's let's take a quick break. And when we come back, Rebecca Nagel is here to talk about the new season of This Land. But before we do that, wanted to bring you all a little bit of catharsis. We have a very special edition of Fuck That Guy starring Texas Governor Greg Abbott and uh, and you all. If you have a fuck that guy, you can record a 30-second voice memo and you can send it to our email address, which is hysteria at crooked.com. Now let's get to it. Hi, my name is Courtney and I live in Austin, Texas. And I just want to say, fuck Greg Abbott. He sucks. He has spent all of the Texas legislature not helping get us through the pandemic, not helping fix our very, very broken energy system after this terrible freeze in February. But no, he cares about criminalizing abortion, hating trans people, and basically saying that we can't tell people that white people were racist during slavery. So yeah, fuck that guy. And welcome back. Our next guest doesn't need an introduction, but I'm going to give her one anyway. Rebecca Nagel is an award-winning journalist and citizen of Cherokee Nation. Nagel is the host of Crooked Media's podcast, This Land. In season one, she told the story of one Supreme Court case about tribal land in Oklahoma, the small-town murder that started it, and the surprising connection to her own family history. In season two, she investigated how a string of custody battles over Native children is threatening the entire legal structure defending Native American rights. You can find her writing on issues of Native representation and tribal sovereignty in The Atlantic, The Washington Post, The Guardian, USA Today, Teen Vogue, Indian Country Today, and more. I've heard of all of those publications. For her reporting, Nagel was awarded the American Mosaic Journalism Prize. Nagel lives in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. Rebecca, welcome. The new season is so good. Thank you. Thank you. You warn listeners at the outset of each episode to take care of themselves as they process these stories. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the new season of this land, uh, the Indian Child Welfare Act, and why it was initially passed? 
Yeah. So um, the Indian Child Welfare Act is actually a pretty old law. It's been around for about 40 years. Um, And in the 50s and 60s, the U.S. federal government had an explicit policy to take Native children from their family, from their tribe, from their culture, and place them for adoption with white families. It was called the Indian Adoption Project. Um, A lot of Native kids were also getting up by just good old bias and racism from social workers who thought that, you know, Native families and Native family structures that, you know, don't fit a lot of white family structures um, weren't good enough and they were coming in and taking the kids. And so a study in the late 60s found that 25 to 35% of all Native children had been removed from their family and their tribes. Um, So, you know, you talk to elders who will talk about during that period of time, there were communities where there just weren't kids because so many children were being taken from the government. And so in 1978, Congress passed the Indian Child Welfare Act, which I think, you know, it's helpful to think about it in, like, the line of civil rights legislation that we have in this period of time where there's this recognition from the federal government that states and state agencies are um, abusive and racist and that there needs to be remedial federal legislation to prevent those things from happening. So we got the Voting Rights Act. We got the Civil Rights Act. um, And at the end of that, in the the end of the 1970s, we got ICWA. Fast forward to the present day, and in the past decade, this law that you wouldn't think would be that controversial has been challenged more times than the Affordable Care Act. And there is a lawsuit that is almost certainly going to be heard by the Supreme Court this term um, that is trying to strike it down and has broader implications because of the way that they're attacking ICWA and the arguments that they're making on everything from tribal sovereignty to civil rights. Mm-hmm. So uh, ICWA specifies that Native children who enter the foster system can't be adopted by families outside of a Native community. Is that correct? It sets off a list of actually placement preferences. And so, um, and it has a measure where the placement preferences can be deviated from by good cause um, and also with the consent of the child's tribe. And so the first preference is for a family member. So like I'm mixed, half my family's non-native. And so those aunts and those uncles and my grandparents on that side, they would all qualify under ICWA. So it's any family member. The next placement preference is another member of that child's tribe. And the last preference is another Native family. Okay. And you mentioned uh, that Native family structures differ from what the U.S. government was trying to impose or like standards the U.S. government had gleaned from like other nationality family structures. Can you talk a little bit about that? What is a Native family structure look like? Yeah, well, there's a lot of, um, you know, families where extended family members are more involved in raising kids. So I think the kind of nuclear family that we think of where it's mom, dad, and the kids, and that's actually baked into a lot of child welfare policy. So um, there's actually one underlying case actually two of the underlying custody cases where before the child went into foster care, um, they were being cared for by their grandparents. 
But because of their parents, their biological parents' addiction issues, they still went into foster care, even though they were already in the care of an adult that was capable, you know, and already taking care of them. Um, And so, you know, that's one of the things. I, I think another really important thing for people to understand just about child welfare in our country in general um, is that there's still huge, huge racial disparities in what kids go into foster care. Um, So like in the state of Minnesota, we were talking about Minnesota earlier, um, one in three Native kids will enter foster care before their 18th birthday, and one in 10 Native babies will enter foster care before they turn one. Um, Nationally, for white kids, the odds of... uh, being in foster care when they're a baby is one in a hundred. And so there are these huge racial disparities. And I think one really important thing to understand is that the majority of child welfare cases are not opened because of allegations of actual abuse. Um, They're open because of allegations of neglect. And neglect um, can be really subjective. And also a lot of times um, families that are just poor that maybe are because of poverty struggling to meet all of the needs that they want to be meeting for their child, a lot of times that category of neglect sweeps up families where the underlying issue is really just poverty. Mm -hmm. That's super interesting. And you touch on this in this season of This Land, um, on the poverty piece, that a lot, uh, it seems like a lot of well-meaning, well-meaning, this is me being generous, privileged people with more means go into being foster parents and into looking to adopt because they believe that the fact that they're wealthier makes them better parents. Yeah. Yeah. It's really hard to talk about adoption and foster care in this country without talking about those dynamics. So just some like basic facts, which is that the majority of adopted children in the United States are children of color. And the overwhelming majority, 75% of adoptive parents are white. And there's also a really, really big push for adoption, actually, among evangelical Christians. It actually kind of started as this, like, um, answer to abortions was, like, the idea was if enough Christians open up their homes, it would eliminate the need for abortion, which, of course, is not how that works because women still want to have autonomy over their bodies. But, and so there's right. this— Being pregnant is a pretty big ask. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, adoption is not an, an alternative to pregnancy. <laughs> right, right. Like, still carry a baby and give birth. Right. But right. um but so that was kind of the idea. And so, you know, there's there are people who are adopting because they want to have a child and they can't and there are also um it's become part of a Christian ministry and what we found in our reporting that for me raised a lot of really serious ethical concerns is that adoption agencies, while they've had this kind of hard, harder and harder time finding um, infants that are available for adoption, are starting to send their clients to foster care. And so people are signing up to foster um, who don't actually want to foster. They actually mm-hmm. really want to adopt. And that's what happened. So the big federal case we're following is um, these three 
non-Native foster families that fostered Native kids and wanted to adopt them. And they all weren't interested in being that temporary home for that child in a time of crisis. They wanted to adopt. And when it was time for that child to go and live with a family member or in another Native home, they fought for custody rather than accepting that role. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. Um, One thing I love about this season of This Land is that it really feels like a rabbit hole that pulls you down. It um, is. <laughs> yeah, and it's and it's not even like a hole because you're not getting into a smaller and smaller space. You're opening up into this big cavern underground of like, holy shit, this is a huge thing. So the state of Texas is taking the side of non-Native families in the case uh, that is at the cent- that starts this whole season of this land. Can you explain the role that Texas is playing here and... Are there some notable power players involved, which at first blush didn't make sense to you? And, um, you know, how how big is this? What is the end game of seemingly non-interested entities fighting to abolish this law? Yeah, very, very good question. And so um, understanding Texas politics is a great way to understand this case and also recently what's happened with abortion And so um, the main plaintiffs, Chad and Jennifer Brackeen, live in the suburbs of Dallas. And when they wanted to adopt this Native kid that they had been fostering, um, they got connected with this really powerful corporate law firm called Gibson Dunn. And Gibson Dunn represents a lot of oil. They represent Chevron. They represent Walmart. And they're also pretty entrenched in Texas. And they have a really close working relationship with the attorney general of Texas. And, you know, I think we're used to, um, you know, blue states and red states bringing different lawsuits. So, like, Texas brought a lawsuit to, like, you know, strike down the Affordable Care Act or invalidate the results of the 2020 election. Um, And so Texas has really spearheaded this type of conservative litigation And this case kind of went through that shoot. And so um, they filed it in a district that's the same judge who who originally struck down the ACA. Um, He was appointed. Texas has this really weird system for how they actually appoint judges. They actually have a panel of conservative lawyers that do that. And so the guy who is running the Texas office of this corporate law firm that helped this couple out was actually on that panel but appointed that oh, judge. God. And he, he's he's kind of like one of these rubber stamp conservative judges. Even the Wall Street Journal has accused him of going too far. So they got in at that level. Um, and, and that's really what got this case, which in so many ways doesn't even make sense according to like the rules of civil procedure. You know, there's there are so many reasons why this lawsuit should just not exist. Like, for example, the same week that the plaintiffs filed this lawsuit saying that ICWA violated their constitutional rights because they couldn't adopt this toddler, they found out that they could adopt the toddler. And so really, like, the entire years that this case has been going on, there's only been a couple days that there's actually been a legal controversy. Um, So, yeah, so there's some big uh, Texas players. And I think another important thing to understand is that um, the Texas attorney general, who's a Republican, they have a network where they bring these cases together. So other Republican attorney generals got on board. And their angle is states' rights. So it's really this issue of not, not the federal government can't tell Texas what to do. Um, and I think it's really deeply ironic. You know, they they asked the Supreme Court to take this case on Friday. 
and to declare ICWA unconstitutional. It's days after they functionally banned abortion in the state. And so we know that those bans disproportionately impact poor women and women of color and vulnerable women. And so when you look at the systems of support that exist for those women who do have their children, you know, um, Texas child welfare system, their foster care system is horrendous. You know, uh, Mm -hmm. federal courts found out that um, abuse was common in uh, child welfare in Texas. They actually had no way to track child-on-child abuse. So if an older child was abusing younger children, they would still be placed in homes with younger children (sighs) because Texas wasn't even tracking it. Um, And now they want to make that system, you know, there is a layer of protection for Native families, and now Texas is asking the Supreme Court to take that layer away, you know, at the same time that their system is abusive and that they're trying to uh, eliminate abortion. And so I think one thing, you know, one point that I think is important for people to understand, too, is that, you know, people say, well, if you don't want abortion, you need to have a better safety net. And for decades, you know, evangelical Christians and anti-choice advocates, they're, they're solution to the need for abortion isn't a safety net for vulnerable families, it's adoption. And they've really explicitly said that and try to build up that program. So it's not about keeping families whole. It's about, you know, quote unquote, saving the children. Mm-hmm. Wow. It really, I mean, I do, I feel a little bit like, uh, you know, that that now kind of meme gif of Charlie from Always Sunny standing in front of the board with all the like strings connecting all the, you know, <laughs> But it really all does sound like, you know, abortion and the fight against ICWA and various other attempts to make it more difficult to have children in this country all kind of serve this really insidious end, which is to, like, turn this country into a place that is more white, even though it's not might not be white in terms of, like, the color of people's skin, white culturally, more Christian and, like... It just all feels so. Ins- I mean, is am I crazy? Am I wearing a tin? <laughs> am I wearing a tinfoil hat? Is this? Does this serving some kind of weird like end of days Christian doomsday type vision? So what we found, um, which we get into more in depth in later episodes, was a paper trail um, among right wing organizations that this these cases cuz like i said it has been challenged more times than the affordable care act so this case is just the most recent one um we're actually funded by a right wing organization that their main goal wasn't even getting rid of iqua or attacking tribes or any of this stuff it was just building conservative power through litigation and this a family foundation that funded some of these early cases against ICWA, you know, saw the writing on the wall that, you know, at a certain point, conservatives aren't going to be able to control the White House and maybe will lose Congress. But if you can control the states and you can control the courts, then conservatives can still have a lot of power and get a lot done. And I think this case is a really good example of that. Um, You know, there are four states that oppose ICWA in this case. There are 26 states in the District of Columbus that support it. So you wouldn't get that through Congress. <laughs> but in the federal court system, they've been able to find this, you know, path that really conservatives have been building for years in the way that they've been shaping the judiciary, where it's really scary. They might be able to strike down this law. They're very close to being able to do it. And so I I think it is a moment where it's maybe not time to put on the tinfoil hat, but um, (laughs) I definitely spent like a lot of time in documents 
Um, and you can see that there's a clear, there's a clear strategy um, to have what I think is an in run around democracy, but an in run around, um, you know, Congress and the popular, what is popular and be able to really reshape laws um, through conservative state legislatures and then also through the courts. And I think it is really scary because it's, you know, abortion, it's happening with abortion, it's happening with ICWA, it's happening with voting rights. Um, you know, all of these things are really being rolled back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the most marginalized people are just acceptable collateral damage in the mm-hmm. service of that goal. Yeah. Well, that's uh, it's a bright note to end on. <laughs> um, Rebecca, thank you so much for making this land. Uh, you can listen to season one and two of this land wherever you listen to podcasts. Please come back again. I, w- I love talking to you every time you're on. Oh, uh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This episode is brought to you by IQ Bar. Power up your life with superior brain and body nutrition products from IQ Bar. Their plant protein bars are the perfect low-carb breakfast. Their IQ Mix zero-sugar hydration drinks replenish electrolytes. And their IQ Joe mushroom coffees will keep you focused all day long. Start each day right with IQ Bar's brain and body boosting bars, hydration mixes, and mushroom coffees. Their ultimate sampler pack includes all three. IQ Bar empowers doers with superior brain and body nutrition. All their products are entirely free from gluten, dairy, soy, GMOs, and artificial sweeteners. And today, Hysteria listeners get an exclusive offer of 20% off plus free shipping. Just text HYSTERIA to 64000. One thing I love about IQ Bar is, first of all, right now it's really dry where I am. Oh, okay. It is hard for me to stay hydrated. I, mean, I just like, I, I'll just be going through my day and I'll be like, why am I so like... Parched. I'm parched. I'm in a bad mood. I feel like I'm going to pass out. And it's, ah, you got to drink some water. You got to stay hydrated. I really like their IQ Mix Zero Sugar Hydration Drinks because it allows me to rehydrate myself at a time yeah. when I feel like the atmosphere is trying to take all my moisture away. Well, and sometimes you need more than just water. Sometimes you need more more than just water. I also love IQ bars because I love a portable breakfast. I love a grab-and-go breakfast, no dishes. Love something I can walk around holding and eating. I like something I can eat in my car without endangering the lives of me and every other motorist on the road. A breakfast burrito, <laughs> not, not the safest thing to eat behind the wheel. IQ bar, go ahead and do it good for you, great ingredients, helps you stay focused and alert throughout the day. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, and you don't have to dirty any dishes. Refuel smarter with IQ Bar's Ultimate Sampler Pack. That's seven IQ Bars, four IQ Mix sticks, and four IQ Joe sticks. And now our special podcast listeners get 20% off all IQ Bar products plus get free shipping. To get your 20% off, just text Hysteria to 64000. Get your discount, text Hysteria to 64000. That's H-Y-S-T-E-R-I-A to 64000. Message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. And welcome back. Alyssa and I are now joined by two other wonderful ladies to talk about a larger issue related to what we just got done talking about in news and uh, with Rebecca. Alyssa, you're on the opposite coast of me. 
but I'm sure you've been paying attention to the California recall. Of course. How could I not? You people yeah. post about it all the time. I mean, you're following the right people because the people <laughs> who are posting about it are the people that are actually engaged with it. <laughs> uh, the latest fact that I read that disturbed me was that 75% of recall ballots haven't yet been returned. Oh, shit. Yeah. The, California makes it really easy to vote. They they send you a ballot. Uh, if you ha- If you have a permanent address where you can receive mail, they send you a ballot and it has postage paid and it's very clear and easy to fill out and just drop back in the mail. I think an issue here is that like there is no real reason to recall the governor. Like he didn't really he did some annoying things. But like what what politician hasn't? Being right. annoying is like a prerequisite in many cases to being in politics. I think you and I can both be I big. And, we Yeah, right. So but he hasn't done anything like horribly wrong. This recall is like based on nothing. Um, but if he is recalled, he'll probably be replaced by an actual crazy person. And it seems like people are kind of not really paying attention. It feels that way. I mean, I was I was at the store the other day when an interview about the re- the recall came on and people were like, why is Caitlyn Jenner on television? I was like, California people. And this is New York, so really they shouldn't be paying that much attention, but like maybe even a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, it is a pretty big state. We have more people than any other state in the country and we cannot turn into Florida. Like that is the one thing that we have been very successful at doing in California is not being Florida. And, you know, if we recall Governor Newsom, we are on the path to becoming Florida, which is embarrassing, quite frankly. And having a governor whose original profession was being a fake judge in something called moral court, it's like, what? <laughs> yeah. That would be very embarrassing for California. Yeah. I mean, so so here's the larger topic that this brings up. Like, I feel like when you're when you live in a democracy, it is non-negotiable that you have to participate in that democracy or you lose it. It doesn't, it's not... People who want to take away your democratic rights um, will take them away unless you are involved and engaged. Um, But how much of a lack of engagement and involvement is the fault of people choosing to be apathetic and how much of it is a failure of communication from people whose jobs it should be to make politics more accessible? And that's what we're going to get into today. I could not have picked two more interesting, thoughtful, and smart women to participate in this conversation with us. First up, she is an author, activist, and a watermelon flavor enthusiast. <laughs> Julissa Arce, welcome. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Glad to be back. What's your latest watermelon find? I don't have it in front of me, but I did take a picture of it. It's not a heart seltzer. It's just like watermelon-infused alcohol in a bottle. <laughs> And it is amazing. And I will find it and post the name of it. And also, thank you so much to all the Hysteria listeners who have been sending me all their watermelon finds. It is amazing. (laughs) And I appreciate it. And I have tried like pretty much all of them that are available for purchase in California. So thank you. Please keep sending them to me. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) Our listeners are the best. Awesome. Absolutely (laughs) awesome. Up next, she's an actor, writer, and recently she threw some bread into the sea. Michaela Watkins. (laughs) Just, you know, just doing my annual casting off all my, all my dirt and grime and residue from the previous year into some bread into the ocean. 
on Rosh Hashanah. I was Jew. <laughs> no, I was glib about it because throwing bread into mm-hmm. the, the sea does sound at its surface to be something that it's like, I need some more information. So mm-hmm. can you, ex- it sounded like a really cleansing activity. Do you mind talking about that yeah, a little bit? Yeah, it's like every once in a while, you know, religion rears like its sort of best head. And uh, one thing that the Jewish religion does really well is uh, death. Death is a great thing. It's if you ever need a template for how to deal with death, go to ask some Jews. Uh, and the other thing is sort of a, a renewal every year. We have these high holidays. Uh, they come in the fall, which is interesting. It's, you know, when school's starting, it's like when everything just sort of feels like a, a fresh new start and you're ready. And we do this thing called Tashlit, where you meditate on a lot of things that you want to change for the year, a lot of things you want to let go of, a lot of things that no longer serve you. And most importantly, uh, all the ways in which you were sort of a major asshole and <laughs> uh, to yourself and to others. And uh, one of the one of the uh, sort of rituals is you imbue it into some something, bread, write it on paper, burn it in effigy, or cast it into the sea, cast it into water. And the idea is that you're sort of letting these things go so that renewal and something new that you're very thoughtful about over the next 10 days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur can come in. And then and then you just really own your side of the street and you atone for all the bad behavior that you've done, all the ways you've wronged others. You It might be a time to say sorry to people, either in your mind, in your heart, or to their face. And... And then you kind of get a clean slate. And if uh, if the greater divine spirit agrees with it, you get sealed in what they call the book of life for another year. And you get to, you know, hang out on this big hot rock that's churning around the sun for another <laughs> whole year. And then you do it again. That's so, <laughs> that's so nice. I think it's it's just good to have some sort of ritual in which you let go of the things that you're holding on to or that you've done that that you feel like that ruminating over isn't necessarily useful, you know? Yeah. I mean, I probably have 20 holes in my, in my stomach lining from all the things that I churn over. So it's kind of a great way this year. I was really looking forward to getting it out in some way, in some physical way. You know? Well, that's, that's awesome. Um, and thank you for sharing that, Michaela. That's like, that's really cool. Um, I want to get into talking about our involvement in things that are taking place on this hot rock that aren't our spiritual lives, that aren't our soul health. Um, I want to talk a little bit about just the country we live in and the ways in which that country depends on our participation um, in order to continue to survive. So, uh, Julissa, I kind of want to start with you. Um, Can you talk a little bit about your political awakening? Like, if you can pinpoint it to a specific incident and as somebody who is more politically active than most other people, um, do you ever find it frustrating to encounter people who seem like they don't really know what's going on? Yeah. So um, as I think many of you already know, I was undocumented for a very long time, which meant that I couldn't vote. Right? Like I couldn't vote until I became a citizen. And that was not until 2014. So the very first election I voted uh, I voted in was the uh, New York City mayoral election, um, I think in 2015. 
if I remember correctly, maybe it was 2014. Um, and so that was the first time I could I could vote, but that doesn't mean that I wasn't like politically active before I had the right to vote, right? And that I think is one of the most amazing things about like young undocumented people is that they're so politically engaged, even though they themselves cannot vote. Um, and, and so I think for me, you know, my, my existence in this country, in this country has always been political, right? There's always been a political element to my being in the United States. And so I've always been very aware of uh, the policies that are going on uh, around us, the, the, the sort of racist, xenophobic things that draw so many of the policies in the United States that create policies in the United States. And so um, it is very frustrating to encounter people who were born with the right to vote, who haven't had to um, do very much to have that to have that right in in this in in today's day and age, right? And so um, it is frustrating to encounter people who are not engaged. At the same time, though, it's it's really important to understand that this country actively tries to take away the right of people of color. To vote, and so, and so, while it is frustrating that people don't vote or aren't as politically engaged, um, I also sort of understand some of that apathy because I think it comes from um, all the things this this country has done to people of color, mm. uh, and two, um, you know, while there are states that make it easy to vote, like the state we're living now um, in California, there are also states like Texas, um, where I grew up, that just passed bills to make it very hard for people um, to vote. And so I, I sort of, I'm, I'm frustrated by it. And at the same time, I understand it. You know, I understand where some of this, some of this apathy and um, lack of engagement uh, is coming from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you bring up a really important point, Julissa, which is that voting is not the only way to be civically engaged. And I think that there's a really, like voting obviously is is an important fundamental right that like, it, if it wasn't important, people wouldn't be trying so hard to get disenfranchised people to not vote. I want to talk about civic engagement in terms of things beyond voting, because I think voting is like up here, right? I'm holding my hand up. This is an audio medium. Um, but then there's all this other stuff that builds to being an informed voter. And uh, Michaela, I would love to hear you talk about um how much responsibility people have to be informed and how much culpability um, there is in the informers for people not knowing what's going on. So like, here's an example. Right before the, the Texas passed, uh, right before the Supreme Court upheld or refused to block the Texas abortion ban, there was about 48 hours of frenzied media coverage where it was like, people didn't know this was happening. So I just would love to hear your your opinion on how much information we have a responsibility to know about and how much information the media has a responsibility to inform us about? Uh, that's a that's a great question. And one that I sort of have kind of wrestled with for a long time because I live in Los Angeles or near it in the land of uh, self-care and all that, which I'm all for. I think it's wonderful to moderate how much news you take in and how much you can, understanding what you can do and what you can't. I have very little stomach for 
people who are like, I just can't watch the news. I just have to take a break. I understand going off of Twitter. I understand I don't need to know the opinions of every own watcher out there. I do feel like you better damn well find a way to inform yourself of what is happening in Texas, either in abortion or in the voting rights. And I, I also and I also have been somebody who was incredibly apathetic. Uh, I had this notion that the United States was really protected in its democracy. But now I understand that the people who I thought were all rah, rah, rah democracy, the Constitution, are the people that I fear the most are the going to crater it. So it, it has been a journey for me. I uh, stepped in when my mom in high school sent me to Washington to go to a, a pro-choice march. And then my eyes were open uh, to the world that's bigger than around me. And I, and I remember saying to my roommate at the time when uh, the Bosnian rape camps were happening, and I said, I, I, can't, I couldn't sleep at night. I just couldn't sleep at night knowing this was happening in the world. And my roommate said at the time, we're not meant to know what is happening outside of our, outside of our sort of our villages. Like the, the news is too much and our brains aren't meant to take that in. She has really reversed that stance. That was 20 <laughs> years ago. And now she's one of the greatest activists I know out there. But it is just so funny to see that you, you took so much for granted and then you realize, oh, we're the adults in the room. We're the ones who have to decide what's happening and how we're going to go forward with things. So it is absolutely everybody's responsibility to inform themselves. And you don't get to use self-care as an excuse to say, I, I'm too sensitive. I can't know what's happening because it bothers me. It should bother you. There are things that should absolutely bother you. And Everybody got real activated, uh, white people particularly during, during Black Lives Matter because they all um, joined white people for Black Lives and things like that. And I would go in the room and there'd be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people there. It was really exciting for a moment, mm -hmm. but then that moment passed and everybody, including myself, fall down on that job. There's always something that we could do more, be doing more. I'm just going to say this really fast that I had a, when Trump was elected, I had a, a, a group of neighbors that we just had a text chain where we would just freak out, freak out, freak out, freak out, freak out, freak out. But then we harnessed that freak out into action. And we got really curious about this guy running. We just knew we had to flip Congress. And we got really curious about this guy, Mike Levin, who was running in Orange County. And we started throwing fundraisers for him. <laughs> and we just raised so much money. And that guy barely but he did, he won, but barely, you know? And that's the kind of activism that I want to see people doing, making calls, writing postcards. That is something that needs to be part of our day as much as getting a coffee. It mm -hmm. may be a week, you, but it has to be something that we all actively, you pick up the phone and you call somebody, you mm -hmm. write a letter, you talk about it, and you don't back off from topics because it's somebody's sensitive to it. Fuck you and your sensitivity. I'm sorry, <laughs> but the house is on fire. I'm sorry you're sensitive to the world. Okay, sorry. That was No, I think I think that's a, those are great those are great points and I think that it's like in a lot of cases people who say that they need to take time away from the news um I think there's there's a difference between like resting up to rejoin the race 
and yes. just checking out. I think like Absolutely. thinking about your brain sort of as like an athlete thinks about their body. Like I, I can work as hard as I can work and then I really need to rest and then I'll go back in and do more work. Um, and if I don't do any work, then I'll get like, you know, out of shape. Um, here's something that I have been thinking a lot about, Alyssa. Um, I've been thinking a lot about, you know, in these last few years where we've watched, you know, the Voting Rights Act be just totally, well, I guess it's now eight years ago that the that the Supreme Court made that Voting Rights Act ruling. Um, and we've watched, it, watched Roe be gutted at the state level and the Supreme Court be largely indifferent to it. And we've watched all of these other rights that we kind of took for granted be ebbed away. I would love to hear during your career in politics, what have been the rights that people took for granted most that you have seen taken away the most? Because people who are taking the rights for granted are not on their guard. I mean, I definitely think, you know, reproductive rights is number number one, probably. Um, I think that more people universally think that voting rights, for example, are something that should be afforded to everybody and be made easy. And the people who are trying to take them away have, have, you can't, you can't couch those reasons as anything other than malevolent, right? The thing that has made reproductive rights so perilous for the past couple of years is that they have found ways to make it seem like they are on the side of good, right? They're trying to protect babies. They have been the reproductive, the anti-anti-choice contingent has spent the last 25 years uh, while we were asleep at the wheel, essentially. We were like, we got it. We're good. And they're like, oh, you stupid little bitches. We are electing people into the legislature. We are getting judges all across the country, you stupid assholes. And the chickens will come home to roost. And they are, you know, they are. I mean, that's the thing. It's like so much work to follow all of these tiny little local races where all these jowly rednecks, I'm talking about rednecks across all socioeconomic spectrums. Like right, right. redneckism often resides in a McMansion, like for Correct. sure. Correct. Um, Those and has, people in Missouri with their guns on the poor on the front lawn. like Exactly. With their $65,000 trucks. Totes, that, those totes. guys are rednecks too. Um, I see how much work it would take to follow every little local race, you know, every little state, um, you know, every little new law that's being introduced at the state level, like who has time for that? And like, how do we combat a lack of time? Here's what I think about this. I think that this also has something to do with the, um, with the gutting of local newspapers, Okay. Mm -hmm. So you used to get your local newspaper. I always did, always, whether I lived in Wisconsin, in Chicago, in Vermont. I mean, Chicago obviously has a bigger, a bigger paper here in upstate New York. Um, You get the Poughkeepsie Journal, you get the Chatham Courier, you know, you see what's going on and, and, and why the people are running for what they're running for. Like how many people are paying attention to the race for coroner in Hudson, New York? Well, you know, it used to be a lot easier, right? It used to be that you read your paper and you talk to people at the store and you're like, what are you doing? And it seems that 
with sort of the advent of cable news and the 24-hour news cycle, that like national politics has become what everybody focuses on. And that's how it, everyone becomes asleep at the wheel. Like we were obsessed with Trump. You know, now, okay, like he was, yes, he was terrible, but what was percolating below the surface was a lot worse than him. And so I think that for us, you know, I have to be honest, there are ways that I try to stay engaged that are kind of a light lift. You know, I watch the local news every night and I watch the local news in the morning. I don't watch CNN in the morning. I don't watch CNN between six and seven. I watch the local news and guess what? You when my local news up in Albany started talking about SB8, I was like, way to go. I thought you were like a wholly owned subsidiary of Sinclair. And here you are talking about like why this is bad. And they talked to local activists. And so I think that for me, I have really tried to just focus as much locally as I can. It's much less exhausting. And you also see that at a very local level, the differences are not as caricatured as they are sort of at the national level. And, you know, and also you should be electing your local judges. And it's it's really uh, where you have a local paper or where your local paper is now online, you know, sign up for their newsletter, watch the local nightly news and find out. It's just, it's not as menacing a task, I think, as it seems if you bifurcate the sort of national food fight from what's really happening in your communities. And like, even for me, looking at trying to understand ranked choice voting. You know, once you figure it out, it's good. And I mean, it's great, of course, but like at first, it's like I'm talking to my parents. Everyone's like, the fuck, how do you do this? This is so complicated. Do I rank everybody? Do I not rank everybody? Now I need to not just know who my number one person is, but who's my two, three, four, and five. And you know what? People sat and it was just kind of a real joy to see people, especially in New York City around the mayor's race, sitting with their, they printed out their thing. They had the notes for each person. They had decided before they went in to vote or they mailed in their their ballot. And you know, it is, it is exhausting. It is exhausting. But the, the, the issues at the local level where things are, are decided and where these people are being put in, it's like, if you're paying attention in your community and there's some fringe lunatic who's like only thing is getting rid of the planned parenthood five counties over, you're like, why do you even want to elect that person to represent you? Because they're not talking about what's happening in your community where I personally care about what's happening at the intersection over by the mobile station. So mm-hmm. I just think that like it's – I think that the more we focus locally, which I have always sort of felt is – is a way to stop some of these truly uh, incendiary things from happening. Mm-hmm. Well, well, most of the things that affect our daily lives are right. things that happen at the local and state level, more than even like what happens at the federal level. And so, yes, like absolutely, local elections are probably more important than federal elections. And yet we don't know when they are because they are, are all sorts of random times during totally. the year. That's a really good they point. They don't happen at the same time every year. And uh, there is a lot more of them, right? Even, even with the California recall election, the fact that it's like on September 14th is the last day um, to vote, right? Versus like doing it in November when people are more used to voting in November. Like those things are calculated. People make those choices in a calculated way so that less people show up to vote. And so, um, you know, we have to remember that. And the, the other thing I was thinking um, when we were just talking about being informed and staying informed, I wish some people would be less informed. 
to be honest. Like, <laughs> if you're getting your news from a YouTuber uh, person and you are getting your news from Facebook, like, be less informed. Don't don't look at those things. Don't Don't click on the Facebook ad because it's not just about being informed nowadays. It's about also not being misinformed. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot more people who are who think that they are so informed and they're so smart and they know everything, they know everything that is wrong, that is false, that is not factual. And they're taking those things and regurgitating them. And then they become, you know, this, this, um, this, this huge like viral things that, that are not actually factual. Like when we're talking about the Newsom election, I know I saw a statistic about uh, a slight majority of Latinos, uh, wanting Newsom to be recalled. And then, but I, but but I've read a lot of things actually that that's because there's been so much misinformation spread on social media that has created a lot of confusion about what the recall is even about. Like people don't even know what the recall is. And Aaron, because it's something that you said earlier, like there wasn't like a thing, right? Mm -hmm. That it was like, he did this horrible thing and therefore he's been recalled. So there has been all these rumors that have been spread online about why he is being recalled. And so, um, and so I think as much as people should be informed, we also then have the added uh, onus, the added chore of not only being informed, but then trying to figure out what information is right and what information is not right. And that is exhausting. Yeah, it's like the do your research crowd is like, no, not like that. Don't do that research. You know, the people who... <laughs> they're busy they're they're busy online buying horse dewormer. Yeah. <laughs> That's where they get their ads pop up. That's not fair. Lambs use it too. <laughs> um, it's just so, leave the sheep out of it. Yeah, exactly. Um, Michaela, you mentioned earlier that you were somebody that used to be um, a, like less engaged. So mm. how, like, if you were going to put together Michaela's like engagement kindergarten when it comes to Mm -hmm. uh, taking in useful information and sorting out between good and bad information. Like how would you, what are the tools that you would give people to who are just getting started going from someone who's less informed and engaged, who wants to be more informed? Well, I mean, the first thing is if, if you can, if you have people like this in your circle, find someone that you know to be very engaged in your circle and, and, look to them. I mean, look to your peers and your, and people in your life that you feel you're like, wow, I I need to be more aware and more engaged of what's happening. It could be a teacher. It could be a parent. It could be an aunt. It could be a cousin or a, or a friend or a colleague. And if, you know, especially if your values align, you know, (laughs) definitely if your values align and I think that's a good way to step into it because I was really lucky. I mean, I am surrounded by such informed, wonderful people who love to do research. And I don't have, when people say they don't have time, I kind of scoff at that because it's like, oh, you don't have time to be a participant of the world that we live in and you don't have time to interact with it in a productive way. Uh you know, you don't have time, like you, you're you so sad about homelessness and you're so sad about people starving, but you don't have time to do anything. Um, but a good cheat and a good way in is to, I think, really align yourself with somebody who is and let them, 
help you, teach you what, where do they get their news from? Where are they uh, active? What, what meetings can you now go to? Everything's online, right? Because of the pandemic. So you can join so many groups, uh, Zooms. Now look, when they say, let's move to the Slack channel, you start to lose me a little bit because that is a <laughs> maze of, I don't know what, and it's really <laughs> an overwhelming maze. But I know that I can look to this group, and in many cases, I'm sorry, but it's a lot of women. A lot of women are taking the mantle and leading these groups of of activism, and it it, it really steams my beans about that because we cover such a spectrum of issues, and I would really love to see more men in these rooms, but that's just a side note. Uh, but there are people who are dedicating their lives to activism, and find those people Find them online and find out how you can join a group. They will give you, if you need it, you know, if you need to be spoon fed all of this, they will give you, this is when the meeting is. This is what we're talking about. This is who we're calling. This is the button that you push. If you want to do that, that is so simple. It's a few short buttons. You commit to an hour, two hours. Uh, if it's postcards, all those kinds of things. But really, you're just going to get so much information because you can get on one of these uh, listservs where every day you get a download into your mailbox of the issues that are happening the most, and you can find them locally. Now, I am on this Nextdoor app in uh, in in the like little rural enclave that I live in, and it's a real mixed bag. I mean, it's a real like <laughs> I would say a real fifty fifty. I grow me in too. County? No. <laughs> It was my happy place because people are like, can anybody name this little bird? This little fellow (laughs) keeps visiting me every day. Does anybody know what he is? And um, oh, he's come back and he's got a friend. Does anybody know what his friend is? And it was so happy. (laughs) But now it's gone real political, especially with the recall. And there is so much misinformation on there. I wish that uh, uh, there were ways that people were speaking more intelligently about what's happening instead of the name calling that's like now started to happen in my happy place. So, so the ugliness is pervasive. It's everywhere, but, but I would say to step in to first find people that you admire that are doing things and really check in. I mean, I could sit here and I'm sure, you know, if hysteria wants to put up a site of like a cheat sheet of like, this is where to start. I think that's probably a great idea. But I, I think that if you can find someone who can pull you into these rooms where you can every day find out what's happening on a local level, at least with next door, I find out what's happening with our water situation uh, and all these other things that I wouldn't know where to go look for it. I think one of the things that I often do is in conversation, I talk about where I fall short on that. You know, like these are the things that I, I wish I did more. And usually somebody is like, yeah, me too. And then maybe we can kind of come to a thing of like, maybe we should hold each other accountable and kind of do do this thing together, you know, or, or, or uh, you know, here's an article I just read that I thought was so interesting and just passing that on and, you know, trying to involve somebody, not because, not, not by shaming or anything like that, but by uh, just showing where I I also, because I do fall short, I fall short constantly. And I'm always wishing that I was more involved and more in, in, in tuned. I love the positive article sharing from reputable sources, like with a person that you're bringing in 
Um, Mm -hmm. Like, you know, if they had been talking about being interested in X issue and you see a great piece in the Washington Post or Mm -hmm. another reputable source about it, like send it along to them with a note that's like, this is super interesting. I love this. Let me know what you think. And that feels to me very non-judgmental and inviting, but it also kind of is instructive. Like this is a place where you can find information that is reliable on this topic that we have discussed. Um, that's a great, that's a great tip, Michaela. Thank you. Also that there needs to be like a day for voting. Like if people really cared about democracy, voting would be a day off. Yes. Like it would be a labor day. It would be a. I think they should call, they should call election day, call it John Lewis day. It's a federal holiday and everybody gets the day off. And that's when we vote. You know, the reason people like us and probably a lot of hysteria listeners need to be engaged. And, you know, when we say, Who doesn't have time? Like there are actually literally people who do not have the time. Like there are people who are working two jobs, right? Who are just, who are just, or maybe have no kids and are just like trying to to make ends meet. Who don't, you know, who who are um, unhoused, who who, who really don't have the time uh, to be informed, to be, engage to participate in phone banks to do all of these things and and they they are actually the people that that a lot of these things impact the most right like all of these because at the end of the day and I always try to remind myself this as much as these things are horrible um you know if I am going to be like I am going to be okay you know I mean I I mean when when Trump was in office I didn't always feel like it was going to be okay because he was even coming for a naturalized citizens and taking away their citizenship. But, but, you know, overall, I still felt like I'm going to be okay. So, but the people who really, who, who this impacts the most, they should be able to have the easiest access to these things, which is why, and and bringing it back to voting, which is why, you know, things like the Texas suppression bill are really horrible because they, if you limit the number of hours and people can go vote and people are at work, then they can't go vote. Then they really don't have time to go vote. And so I just don't want to lose sight that, you know, a lot of these things that we're talking about here today apply to some people and really don't apply to a lot of other people. And it's important to make that distinction. I, I agree. I, I agree. And actually what I wanted to say, and thank you for that majorly important reminder, which is that I will say that I, until I could get my basic, basic, basic needs met, which is I had an apartment and I had a job where I I was still living paycheck to paycheck, but until like I knew I was getting my next meal, that's when I started to think about the world at large, you know, or like even my village at large. When the whole Monica Lewinsky thing was happening, I remember I was like slinging plates and going to school or whatever I was doing. And I was just barely eating. And I thought, I don't fucking care. I don't have time for this. I don't, this doesn't, this doesn't apply to me because I'm just trying to like live as a person. I don't care who Ken Starr is. I I just don't like, I can't, at that moment, I didn't care. Yeah. And you you know, know, the thing is, if more people would have cared about Ken Starr, it would have ended a lot of damage that that fucker did. He has (laughs) been a historically smelly fart in the elevator of America. Um, We have to take a quick break. I'm glad Uh on that fart thought. And we have to come back and uh, do Sanity Corner before we run out of time. So stick around, listeners. We will be right back.
You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. And welcome back. No housekeeping this week. We're just going to get straight to our sanity corners. Julissa, do you want to start? Yes. So last night, um, there was a a 7.1 um, earthquake in, in Mexico. In, and the center of it was in Acapulco, Guerrero, which is uh, in the same state where I am from and just a few hours away from where my family lives. And it was felt all the way to Mexico City. And I, so I knew that my my mom had to have felt it because it's sort of in that, it's sort of in between those two places. Um, and of course, it was like really scary anytime there's like a horrible thing happening and you're really far away from your family. And then I'm trying to call her and she's not picking up because the light was out. Um, so this horrible thing happened, right? And so finally I get, I get a hold of, I get a hold of my mom on WhatsApp and I'm like, mom, I'm so scared. Like, why are you picking up? Please tell me, please check in. Tell me you're okay. And she sends me this meme that is this guy holding a huge, huge bolillo. A bolillo is like a big piece of bread. And it's like as big as him. And, and the meme says, uh, un pan para el susto, uh, which means like a bread for the scared or, or have this bread because you're scared. In Mexico, that's like a big thing you say. It's like whenever you get scared, you're like, oh, just have a pan, like just eat a pan and you'll be okay. And you all your worries will go away. And so my sanity corner is Mexican memes because they are always on point. Like no matter what is going around in the world, you can find a Mexican meme that will just make you laugh and it will give you perspective and you will be like, you know what? You're right. I should just have a fun for all of my worries. And so that is my sanity corner, Mexican memes. Thank you, whoever makes those happen. But Julissa, <laughs> did, you, did you go get a bun? I did not... Go get a bun. I was, however, at Disneyland while this was happening last night. And so I did have this Monte Cristo sandwich, which I did not realize was essentially a funnel cake sandwich. It was like batter and fried and had powdered sugar on top. So it was like perfect. I already had one sitting right in front of me. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, you need to, okay, we need to have a watermelon products Mexican meme, like <laughs> information exchange going on over here because I, color me intrigued. Um, Michaela, <laughs> what is yeah. your sanity corner this week? Okay, so uh, I've been on like a, a long road trip uh, with my husband and our dogs. And we stayed at this uh, house one night, uh, or for a few nights actually. And it just was that hur the hurricane was was hidden. So it was just uh, rain, 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 rain. And they had Monopoly and Scrabble and Clue in the house. And Clue, I re we were reminded after setting up the whole game, you can't play with two people. But we played Monopoly. <laughs> <laughs> we played Monopoly, which I hadn't played since I was a kid. 
And I had so much fun. I couldn't stand it. It brought out all that old, like when I was a kid, like at one point I almost picked up the board and threw it at my husband, <laughs> which doesn't sound like, like sanity, but it was, uh, it was so fun to just not look at our screens just talk to each other, uh, the competitiveness, how much I fucking hate capitalism. It like that <laughs> game is so maddening. And then the joys of when you're winning. So when I came <laughs> back, I've been playing, I've been playing Rummy Cube with uh, some friends and just taking out the tiles and taking out these tactile, you know, games where you're actually just playing them with. And we talk and we have such a great time. And it's just such a, uh, it's such a, amazing way to spend a few hours. And and you just talk and smack and you're <laughs> laughing and you're telling stories. And my friend made me cry because she was telling me this really sad story. And then we unpack a bunch of stuff. And I just think board games, board games, board games, board games, coming back to board games for me. Oh, that's such a good idea to go screen free with board games. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Man, I want to do that. Now Now I want to play Clue. I need to make more friends so I can play Clue. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I will go next. Um, my sanity corner, and I know that, like, I am, you know, not the first one on this train, but I've been watching Reservation Dogs on FX. Well, it's on Hulu, um, but it's, like, an FX show. It's so good. Have any of you guys watched Reservation no, Dogs? No, what is it? It's, it's a half-hour comedy. List. Yeah, it's a half-hour comedy um, from uh, Taika Waititi. And uh, Sterling Harjo is, I believe, the other uh, creator's name. And it is a show about four indigenous teens on a reservation in Oklahoma. The show's entire like writing staff and directors and almost all of the crew are indigenous. It is like, and it was shot in Oklahoma. It's so good. It's hilarious. It's heartfelt. The acting is great. The directing is great. The set design is great. Um, It feels like a new thing. You know, like there's so many things that get, you know, put out and they kind of feel like less good versions of things that already exist. And this feels like a really new thing. And it's like these kids are, they're amazing actors. The plot is really fun. It kind of goes into surrealism. There's like this one character who hallucinates this Native American warrior who's actually kind of a fuck up, who like tries to give him bad advice. It's it's just like so, so funny and so good. And um, it's on Hulu and you can just, there's I think there's only six episodes. Um, so you can just like watch all of them in one sitting. There's It's such a good show. Reservation Dogs, highly recommend. Um, Alyssa, what's your sanity corner? I feel like mine's very basic. Um, the so uh, mine's also a TV show. I started watching Clickbait on Netflix. Have you guys seen Clickbait? No. Okay. No. Okay. I saw a so commercial. It was the past. Sure. The past couple. The past week and a half have been like very sort of controversial in my house. Like the cats all have diarrhea. Things have broken. <laughs> there was like a flood in the basement last night. And I find that uh, like before Labor Day, I was having a lot of anxiety about post-Labor Day. Like what's going to happen? It's going to be so stressful. Everything's going to come back. And so anyway, I was at like a 10 out of 10 on the anxiety train. And I'm like, I need to find something. So I went to my group text with my three ladies who uh, worked with me in the White House. And I was like, okay, guys, I need a show that's going to be total escapism, that's going to suck me in. 
unanimously have you not watched clickbait. And so any it's Adrian Grenier, if I'm saying his name right, uh from what was that show? Entourage. Entourage. And oh, he's in that? She's yeah, he's with them. Oh, he's in it. And it's basically this like kidnapping plot that they're trying to uncover that all went down online. And the thing that I really like about it is that it's technically, I guess, a procedural, but the format's very different. So every episode is like a different person and how they are a suspect. And all of a sudden last night, I, you know, after every, every, I'd watch an episode, I'd pause, I'd go down and mop the basement of water. I'd come back, lay back down on the couch. And when (laughs) tiny baby cat who is shitting herself, she was like chirping. I was like, girl, get on the couch and watch the show. I got 48 minutes to myself. Like, let's do this. (laughs) And anyway, I was so excited. I like, I can't wait to go. Like, you know, I think that's the thing about a show sometimes that makes it like a sanity corner is that it gives you something to look forward to at the end of the day. It's like today I have so much shit going on, but then tonight I'm like 7.15, I'm sitting down on the couch with my yeah. Amy's vegetarian pizza and I am going to watch the shit out of it. I'm like, but you can only have two more episodes because you have to space it out so I don't binge them all at the same time. So as you can tell, I'm like very excited by it. So <laughs> yeah. check it out. It's very, it's very, it's very like fun. a glow that came over your face. Just when I you know it's very, it's very well done and it's, uh, it uses your brain. You know, you're trying to figure it out as you go along, but then I'm kind of like, why am I doing their job for them? I should just sit back and enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> that's um, amazing. Great sanity corners guys. Uh, and that's all the time we have for the show. Michaela and Julissa, thank you so much for coming by today. Alyssa, thank you for being my ride or die. Per usual, thank you to Rebecca Nagel for stopping by to talk about the new season of This Land. And thanks to all of you, the listeners. If you like what you're hearing, tell your friends, rate us, give us a nice review, and there will be more hysteria for you next week. Hysteria is a Crooked Media production. Caroline Rustin is our producer. Our executive producer is me, Aaron Ryan. Alyssa Mastermonico is our co-producer, and Brian Semmel is our associate producer. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer, and our editor is Sarah Gibalaska and the folks at Chapter 4. Our digital team is Nar Melkonian, Mia Kelman, and Matt DeGroote. Thank you to Juliet Beckstrand for production support every week. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Monday.com.